Welcome back to the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. You are listening to one of a series of lectures given by Caitlin Carl during our summer study through the Book of Mark. For Caitlin's lecture slides and additional study resources for the Book of Mark, please visit DaytonWomenInTheWord.com slash Mark resources. this evening, so bear with me. Make sure that you check out the Dayton Women in the Word shop after lecture tonight. It's just right outside of the sanctuary here, um, and there's t-shirts and mugs and totes, and I think it said that they're all on sale, so that's super exciting. Um, we would love for you to join us, you and your family, to join us this Thursday is our night of worship to celebrate God's faithfulness over the past five years of summer study, and it's at Faith Christian Fellowship in Beaver Creek at 6.30. So come, men, women, and children are invited, and we hope to see you all there. If you have not yet filled out the summer study survey that you received in your email, please do so at your earliest convenience. We really value your input um, and it's super helpful to us. And this will be available until Monday, August 5th. And I think that there is another giveaway for people um, who complete the survey by a certain time. So check that out. Dayton Women in the Word hosts something called Teaching Collective a few times throughout the year. And this is a great place to jump in and to learn more about teaching or leading if you really enjoyed the deeper study format that we've had this summer. Um, This will help you learn how to lead a Bible study or how to prepare a talk, or maybe one day you can do this. And um, so that's starting back up in August, and you can follow any of the Dayton Women in the Word social media accounts um, or subscribe to their emails for updates and information about that. For anyone who donated items to our kids' classrooms this summer um, and you want them back, pickup will be this Friday, the 26th, from 10 a.m. to noon here at the church. So thank you for donating your items and letting all of these children love on them this summer. Um, But please come and get your things so that we don't have them all in our office. Um, And lastly, keep your eye out this fall as the Dayton Women in the Word team will be announcing some position openings. If you think this is something you might be interested in, being involved in this incredible ministry, go ahead and start praying about it now. And then watch for more information as the openings post sometime this fall. All right, let's open with prayer. Oh Lord, what a summer this has been. It is hard to believe that this is our final session, but I pray tonight, Lord, that as we wrap up Mark and we look back over where we've been this summer, that you would give us ears to hear any final word that you would have for us and that we would walk away from here tonight and from this summer as a whole, knowing you more, loving you more, and committed to following you all the days of our lives. Be with us now, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 
and let's say our summer verse together one last time. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Very good. And hopefully we'll remember that beyond now. Okay, so let's start with a brief recap of what happened last week. So we started in chapter 14 with the chief priests and the Pharisees looking for a way to stealthily kill Jesus and Judas offering to deliver him right into their hands. We saw Jesus anointed at Bethany in an act of lavish love by an unnamed woman. Jesus and his disciples partook of the Passover feast and he predicted both his betrayal and that all of his disciples would fall away and Peter would deny him. The troop then moved to Gethsemane where Jesus prayed that this cup might pass from him. And then he was arrested. And then he was tried before the religious council, tried before Pilate, and handed over to be crucified. After his crucifixion and death, his body was laid in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea, and a stone was rolled over the entrance. And that is where we left the Savior of the world. On Friday evening, as the Sabbath began, dead, wrapped in a shroud, and buried in a rock tomb. And as we begin tonight, it's been approximately 24 hours since Jesus' burial. And as the Sabbath comes to a close, the shops in the city are opening back up, and the women that we met in the previous chapter, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, go and buy the spices that they need to anoint Jesus' body. And then early the next morning, they set out for the task. And as they're walking to the tomb, they start to worry about how they're going to get to Jesus' body. Who will roll away the stone for us? As they approach the tomb, however, they find that this won't be an issue because the stone has already been rolled away. They go inside and find an angel sitting within the tomb and they're alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he tells them. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said. Well, remember back to Mark chapter 14. As Jesus is telling his disciples that they will all fall away, he adds, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And the angel reiterates that message here. Everything that's happening right now is exactly as Jesus said it would happen. And just as we've seen before in this gospel, when someone comes face to face with Jesus's true identity, with his power and his deity, they're afraid. Remember in chapter 4 when Jesus calms the storm, or in chapter 5 when Jesus casts the legion of demons out of the man in the Gerasenes, or in chapter 6 when Jesus walks on the water. And so Mark tells us that the women went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. But just as with all the episodes of fear that we've seen previously, it's not really about the people who are afraid, but about the person whom they're fearing. It's about Jesus. When these fears show up, it's because the eternal is breaking into the temporal. 
the heavenly is breaking into our humanity. And more than showing us our fears, these events show us little glimpses of the true glory of Jesus, of the yet-to-come reality of our soon-to-be-made-new world. So consider the next time that the Lord shows up in your life, in a moment when heaven seems to break through and touch earth. Rather than fearing, behold. And rather than trembling, worship. Because the Lord who made heaven and earth has drawn near. So praise him and thank him. And say with the psalmist, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's also worth noting here that Peter is specifically named by the angel among all the disciples. And notice, too, that the angel still refers to them as disciples. They all fled. They all left Jesus to face death alone. And Peter flat out denies him three times. But they're still his disciples. He's still his Peter. He still loves them and cares for them. And even though they did not live up to their own promises to stay true to him, Jesus will absolutely keep his word to them. And he will meet them in Galilee just as he said. What an incredible savior we have. No matter how many times we fall, no matter how far away we may have strayed, Jesus will never change. His promises are true yesterday, today, and forevermore. And this is really where we started our summer, right? Looking at the big story of the Bible, the story of how a holy God is bringing a sinful people back to himself. As God was pronouncing the curse on Adam and Eve for eating the forbidden fruit, he also promised that one day, the offspring of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, and the serpent would bruise the offspring's heel. And Jesus is that promised offspring who dealt a fatal blow to Satan when he rose from the dead, breaking the power of sin and death. Yes, Jesus' heel was bruised as he suffered the pain and humiliation and isolation of the cross. But our Savior endured it all for our sake, that we might one day be restored to the perfect fellowship that we shared with God in the garden before we were overcome by sin and death. It took thousands of years, but God kept his promise. And he kept it despite man's continual denial of him. All through scripture, we see the people of God forgetting his faithfulness to them and turning to other gods and to their own ways. The Bible does not shy away from telling the horrible truth about God's people. They're murderers, liars, idol worshipers, adulterers, proud, disobedient, arrogant, and, well, they're sinful. And yet, through all the ups and downs, God still sends the snake crusher. He keeps his millennia-year-old promise because he's God. And faithfulness and steadfastness and promise-keeping are his 
very nature. But when we've strayed, if we will return, God will gladly welcome us home. In Deuteronomy 4, verses 29 to 31, Moses is speaking to God's chosen people, Israel. And he's warning them that they will indeed fall away. And they will suffer the consequences of not following God. But, but from there, from this place of idolatry and disobedience, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. And this is true for us today, too. No matter how far you've strayed or erred or denied, when you return to the Lord, he is merciful. We read in Psalm 103, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He will not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Though we stray and we turn our backs and we deny and we disobey and we sin, he keeps his promises. And when we return to him, he will not leave us or destroy us. He won't deal with us according to our sins. Rather, he casts our sins as far as east from west, and he shows compassion to those who fear him. So is there any area in your life where you're feeling a little like Peter tonight? You've really messed up. You overestimated your own power over sin, and you fell. Maybe you just scraped your knee, told a little lie, or maybe you feel like you're barely surviving under the weight of it all. Just as, as with Peter, who truly loved Jesus despite his denials, if you love Jesus tonight, hear him call your name. Return to him. Meet him in Galilee, if you will, and know that he will keep all of his promises to you to be merciful to be gracious, and to remove your transgressions and have compassion. Another thing to point out here in Mark's closing story is that a group of women are the star witnesses. These two Marys and Salome were the witnesses to Jesus' death, and the two Marys see where Jesus is laid in the tomb, and then all three of them come to find the empty tomb and hear the angel's proclamation that he has risen. In that day, women were second-class citizens to the point that their testimony would not even have been considered valid in a court hearing. And yet, Mark highlights their central role in this most wonderful story ever told. And most scholars will point to this as a major point of authenticity in the Gospels. 
If the authors wanted to write a fictional story and make it as plausible as possible, they certainly would not use, have used women as their key witnesses. But of course, the gospel writers weren't creating this story out of thin air. It really happened. Jesus was really born to the Virgin Mary. He really nursed at her breast and learned how to walk and talk and read and write and grew up. And he really lived for 30 years on this earth, fully God and fully man. And then he really died, a gruesome and awful death, and he was really buried. And then he really did come alive again, just as he said he would. And this trio of women, they witnessed it firsthand. But instead of going and immediately telling everyone the wonderful news, they flee from the tomb with fear and trembling. And they say nothing to anyone. We, too, this summer have been witnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We've come face to face with the Messiah. We've sat under his teaching and heard his voice and learned from him. So as we walk away from this experience, let's not be like those women and say nothing about it. Let's go and tell the world and invite them to know, love, and follow this risen Savior. And he is indeed risen and Mark seems to almost gloss over this point. It just gets a couple of words from the angel. He has risen. He is not here. And then the women flee the tomb, and that's it. The gospel's over. Well, I'm going to take just a couple more minutes than Mark does, and I want to really dwell on the fact of the resurrected Christ for a moment tonight. A really dead person really came alive again. And this is not new to us. We saw this happen in other places in this gospel. But this wasn't just any dead person. This was the Son of God. This was the Messiah, the promised king who was coming to bring about God's kingdom here on earth and free us from our bondage to sin and death. And if he stayed dead, he would have been defeated. Sure, he did a few lovely miracles. He healed some sick people, cast out some demons, fed some crowds. But that would have been it if he had stayed dead. But he didn't stay dead. And I'm reminded here of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He's writing here to the Corinthian church, some of whose members are denying that Jesus' followers would be raised just as Jesus had been. And starting in verse 12, it says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. 
But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so in Christ also shall all be made alive. Jesus Christ did not stay in that tomb. His remains will not someday be dug up and discovered by archaeologists, for he is alive. He is not dead. He is risen. And because he is risen, our faith is not in vain. It is effectual. Because he is alive, our faith is not futile. It is fruitful. Because he is alive, we are not still in our sins, but we are freed from them. We do not have hope only in this life, but in the life that is yet to come. And we are not of all people to be most pitied, but our lives should be those which are most desirable. And because he lives, we too will live. There is a resurrection of the dead, and Jesus paved the way. So are you following the risen Lord tonight? Will you rise again when he comes back to newness of life, to live forever in perfect fellowship with God? Or will you rise again only to face eternal suffering and separation from your creator? If you are not sure, please speak to me or your discussion group leader or any other Dayton Women in the Word team member or a trusted friend. Don't leave here without knowing what will happen to you if Jesus came back tonight? And that's the end. So I hope you guys liked this study and have a great rest of the summer. Just kidding. This, this is really a strange, abrupt ending to a gospel, right? It's obvious that Jesus has risen. The women see the empty tomb and the angel tells them that he's no longer there, but we never actually encounter the risen Christ. The last that we saw of the disciples, they fled from the garden. And Peter is weeping after he denied Jesus three times. And we're just left with this sort of cliffhanger. Like everyone failed except for Jesus, which is true. But still, it's a really strange way to end a gospel. But Caitlin, you might be saying, what about the next 12 verses? Well... You probably saw the little note in your text that indicated that some of the earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. It is almost unanimously agreed upon by today's Bible scholars that Mark did not write verses 9 to 20 of chapter 16. There are multiple reasons for this belief, apart from the fact that they're lacking in the earliest manuscripts. One is word choice, another is style, and another is content. We've just spent the summer intensely studying Mark, and I feel like we've probably gotten a, at least somewhat familiar with his voice and his way of writing. So did anyone else sense the difference in these last 12 verses? The cadence of speech is different. The focus of the writing is different, and the word choice is very different from all of the other chapters in Mark's gospel. And this is also not the only alternate ending to Mark that exists. There's at least one more, and some commentaries said there are possibly up to three more alternate endings to this gospel. 
Most scholars think that this extra ending that is included in your printout was written sometime during the second century, well after Mark had completed the rest of this gospel. And there are a couple of options on the table. Either Mark intended for his gospel to end at verse 8, or we simply don't have the ending that he originally wrote. Perhaps the parchment tore at some point or was otherwise lost. Remember that the printing press had not yet been invented. So any time that someone wanted a copy of Mark's gospel, he had to copy it down by hand. And apparently at some point, one of the scribes that's creating a copy of Mark's gospel thinks that it ends too abruptly or incorrectly, and he decides to add his own ending to just round it out a little bit. Since these last 12 verses are considered interesting but not inspired, we're not going to spend a ton of time looking at them. The fact that they are very likely not inspired also means that you should not base any part of your belief system off of something found in these verses alone. Find scripture that says like things and use that along with the entire canon of scripture for forming the basis of what you believe, not just these verses. And before we jump into what these 12 verses say, I want to strongly encourage you to head over to the Dayton Women in the Word website, and under Mark Resources, you'll find a link to the Mark series from Bridgetown Church. Click on that link, and then scroll all the way to the bottom of that page, and choose this sermon, number 58, the extra ending of Mark. In this recording, one of the Bridgetown Church pastors is speaking with Bill Mounts, who has his PhD in New Testament studies and who has served on the translation boards for both the NIV and the ESV Bibles. He talks about the rigor that goes into Bible translation and the ways that translators are able to determine what is original scripture, like Mark 16, 1 through 8, and what was added later, like Mark 16, 9 through 20. It's absolutely fascinating, but he drives home this one point, and I'm going to as well. You can trust your Bible. Perhaps hearing about this little bracketed portion of scripture raises some questions for you, like how do I know that other parts of the Bible weren't also added later? But I'm telling you that you can trust your Bible. Go listen to this podcast and be encouraged and enriched. My background is in linguistics, so I find the language piece of this absolutely fascinating, but it was also a great boost to my understanding of how the Bible that I read every day came to be and to my confidence in its truth and reliability. So again, go listen to this podcast. I urge you, and you will not be sorry. Okay, so what is contained in these extra verses? Well, it's largely material that seems to have been borrowed from the other three Gospels. So verses 9 through 11 are essentially a summary of John 20, verses 11 through 18, when Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. She goes and tells the disciples what she's just seen, that Jesus is risen, but they don't believe her. 
Verses 12 to 13 are a summary of Luke 24, verses 13 to 35, concerning when Jesus appears to the two men on the road to Emmaus. He conceals his identity from them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Why didn't somebody write that down? I've always wanted to know. Then in verses 14 to 18, we see this scribe's take on the Great Commission, as found in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And we see this commission carried out in the book of Acts, as this book records the activity of the early church and especially of Jesus' disciples as the gospel begins to spread like wildfire. And Acts is also likely where the list of signs that accompany those who believe comes from in verses 17 and 18 of Mark chapter 16. We've already seen that Jesus gave the apostles authority to heal the sick and to cast out demons, and they continue to do these signs as the church grows and spreads. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit um, descends on the apostles at Pentecost, we read that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then in Acts 28, Paul is making a fire, and after he throws a bundle of wood onto the flames, a poisonous viper slithers out and bites him on the hand. And the locals think that he's a dead man, but Paul just shakes the snake off and keeps on going as if nothing ever happened. And perhaps this is where the idea of picking up snakes comes from, though Paul certainly didn't pick the viper up intentionally. As for the drinking of deadly poison, there is no scriptural basis for this statement. But again, we have to remember that this ending is not scripture, and it should not be read as such. One author said this, Read the longer ending of Mark as a testimony to some of the things people wanted the Bible to say, but that it thankfully does not. Rest assured that if you're not going around picking up snakes and drinking poison without experiencing harm, it does not mean that you do not possess true belief. And finally, in verses 19 to 20, Jesus ascends to heaven and sits down at the Father's right hand, and the disciples that he left behind follow Jesus' instructions, and they head out into all the world and proclaim the good news. The end. So for the rest of our time together tonight, I want to go back to Mark chapter 1 and look at the opening verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We opened our summer looking at this verse and saying that Mark would spend the rest of his gospel defending his claims in this first verse, that Jesus is indeed the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, come to usher in the kingdom of God here on earth, and that he is indeed the Son of God. Tonight, as we close, let's remember how Mark has done just what he set out to do. So first, let's talk about Jesus' messianic identity. We get this right from the outset of Mark's gospel. In chapter 1, when he quotes from the prophets Isaiah and Malachi about a messenger that will come and prepare the way before the Messiah. We're then introduced to that messenger, John the Baptist, as he prepares the way for the one who is to come after him, the one whose sandals he is not even worthy to stoop down and untie. 
and Jesus is that one. And when he appears on the scene, he is baptized in the Jordan. And when he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Another messianic marker found in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And then throughout the first eight chapters, we see Jesus fulfilling a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 35. Every time that he heals somebody who is blind, deaf, lame, or mute. And then at the turning point of this gospel, chapter 8, verse 29, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus does not correct him because he's right. And as chapter 10 concludes, Jesus passes by the blind man named Bartimaeus who calls out to him over and over using the messianic term, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus hears and responds to his call because Bartimaeus is right. He is the Christ. Chapter 11 opens with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling the messianic prophecy from Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 10. And the people treat him like the king that he is as he enters the city. And as soon as he enters the city, he enters the temple fulfilling yet another messianic prophecy from Malachi 3. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple. In chapter 12, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard owner who went away and leased his vineyard to wicked tenants who abused and killed his servants and ultimately his son. After telling this parable against the religious leaders standing before him, Jesus concludes with a quote from Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which had long been considered a messianic psalm. And a little later in chapter 12, after being questioned by the different religious leaders of the day, Jesus turns around and asks them a question about something that David wrote in Psalm 110. And in doing so, he clearly shows himself to be both the son of David and the Lord of David, the Messiah. And then in his trial before the religious council, Jesus himself identifies that he is indeed the Christ. The chief priest asks him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus responds, I am. And then one final time, Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replies, you have said so. And if all the other fulfillments of prophecy hadn't done the job, Jesus has just explicitly stated his identity before the religious council and before Pilate. And there's no denying it now. And besides all of these messianic prophecy fulfillments, Jesus also demonstrates that he's the Christ, the king over all of creation through his authority. Throughout this gospel, we see his authority displayed over man, over the forces of evil, over illness and disease, to forgive sin, over the Sabbath, over nature, over death, over the physical world, and in the final judgment. There is not a single thing, seen or unseen, physical or spiritual, past, present, or future, over which Jesus does not have authority. The question we must ask ourselves is this. Do we recognize Jesus as the Messiah, the king who has rightful authority over every aspect of our lives? And where are we refusing to grant him the authority 
that he already has. Well, the second claim that Mark made is that Jesus is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And right in chapter 1, after Jesus emerges from the waters of the Jordan when he is baptized, we hear a voice from heaven speak, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So really, what further proof of this claim do we need? God himself just said, this is my son. It doesn't get any clearer than that, but let's take a look anyway. In chapter 2, Jesus is teaching in a house when he's interrupted by a paralyzed man being lowered down on a mat through the roof. And seeing the incredible faith of the man and of his friends, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is indeed God. In chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. And the disciples fear because a huge storm comes upon them and they think they are perishing. But Jesus commands the storm, peace, be still. And it stops. And the disciples ask, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? None other than the one who was present at their very creation the only son of God. And in chapter five, as Jesus arrives on the shore of the Gerasenes, he's confronted by a man possessed by a legion of demons. And the legion cries out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Even the demons recognize Jesus for who he really is. In chapters six and eight, the son of God miraculously feeds multitudes in desolate places, just as God miraculously fed the multitudes of Israel in the wilderness. In chapter six, Jesus again aligns himself with the one who created the world as he demonstrates his command over creation by walking on water. In chapter 9, we again hear the voice of God at Jesus' transfiguration as he speaks from the clouds, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And then we see Jesus blatantly stating his identity as God's Son at his trial when the chief priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus responds, I am. And then after his death, the Roman centurion who witnessed it proclaims, truly, this man was the son of God. Mark has more than proven through this gospel story that Jesus is both the Messiah and the son of God. He has accomplished exactly what he set out to do, and now the reader is left to answer the question for herself. Who do you say that Jesus is? Are you going to believe all of the evidence that Mark just laid out before you, or are you going to reject it, like the religious leaders? And to wrap up tonight, I want to take a look at what this means for us, that Jesus is indeed the Messiah and the Son of God. We believe, and so we will follow him, but what does that mean for us? Well, the kingdom of God and the cost of discipleship were two major themes this summer, and they go hand in hand. Remember that the kingdom of God is where God reigns. So if you're a follower of Christ and God reigns in your life, then you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that has major implications for how we live our lives. 
We see as Jesus calls his disciples away from their families and livelihoods that the call to follow Christ involves a radical commitment to him and to serving him. Jesus tells us that his family are those who do God's will over and above the will of anyone else, including themselves. We see that Christ's disciples have ears to hear. They listen to his word and they look for understanding and application. And they have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, the manifestation of the reign of God in their hearts and in their lives. Those who follow Christ will have good soil hearts, soft and receptive to God's word and to God's kingdom. They will choose faith in him over their fears, even if they don't do it perfectly every time. And Jesus' disciples are sent out, and they participate in his kingdom work. And we see that Christ calls his disciples to holy rest and to Sabbath. And all of these aspects of discipleship are made clear in the first eight chapters of Mark. And after the turning point, after Peter's confession, Jesus starts to tell his disciples even more about what it means to be citizens of God's upside-down and backwards kingdom. It means taking up your cross and denying yourself. It means losing your life to save it and being unashamed of Jesus and his words. It means being last of all, and servant of all. Citizens of the kingdom will care for the least and for the lowest. They will cut off anything that is causing them to sin. And they should expect suffering, trials, and persecution. They should be salt in the world. They should be at peace with other kingdom citizens. They should be like little children receiving the kingdom with childlike faith. And they should be careful that great wealth is not a snare. True kingdom citizens bear fruit for their king, and they stay awake and on guard, ready for their king to return at any moment. A true disciple of Christ will not betray him, and she will weep when she fails him. And she will be strengthened as she partakes of the body and blood of her Savior. Discipleship and kingdom living means all of these things. But to put it simply, it means that we follow Jesus. We sit under his teaching. We read his word. We ask him questions. We pray. And we live like him. This is a high and holy calling but it is one that we are not called to alone. Jesus paved the way, and he empowers us by his spirit, and we are surrounded by other kingdom citizens as we walk this narrow path. And my prayer for us as we walk away from this summer is that in seeing Jesus up close and personal, we are encouraged and emboldened and strengthened and excited and empowered to go forth from here and share the good news. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the risen King. He is the Son of God. 
He's the only way to heaven. And he is waiting with open arms to receive anyone who would repent and come to him. So let's go out and proclaim it. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come before you tonight, awed by who you are. And as we leave this summer's study, may we not leave behind the truths that we've learned and the ways that we've encountered you. May we not forget our answers to the question, who is Jesus? And may those answers drive us to live boldly and faithfully for you. May your kingdom come. We love you, Lord. Amen. So before we leave tonight, I want to take just a minute to thank a few people. Um, Firstly, I just want to thank the Lord for this study. Because without him, there wouldn't be anything to study, first of all. Um, But also without him, none of this would be possible. So first and foremost, all the glory goes to God. And secondly, I want to thank my husband and my kids for their graciousness this summer as I hopped around to coffee shops all over Dayton and missed more bedtimes than I would have liked. Without my husband, especially, these lectures would never have been written. So thank you, Kevin, for your sacrifice this summer for the women of Dayton. And thirdly, I want to thank the whole Dayton Women in the Word team for the amazing job that they did in putting on this summer's Bible study. Without their hard work behind the scenes, we would not have had discussion group leaders. We wouldn't have had our beautiful Mark packets that you all got to have. We wouldn't have had sound or podcasts or emails or a children's program and so many other things that I know I have not mentioned. So if you see a team member tonight, be sure and thank her for her hard work in making this summer possible. And lastly, I want to thank all of you ladies for your participation. This is not a study for the faint of heart. It's a lot of work, but boy, is it worth it. So thank you for coming back week after week, for enduring um, days of no air conditioning, for participating in discussion, and for studying God's word with me. I've thoroughly enjoyed spending the summer with you. And I hope that you have grown and learned here as well. And so to wrap up our night, we have a little drawing for a couple of prizes to say thanks to all of you for being a part of studying the word with us this summer. So we have this book called Women of the Word. And um, this book has been really formative in this um, organization as a whole, this ministry as a whole. Um, We use Jen Wilkins' um, method of Bible study in creating our studies, and she has really um, shaped us as women studying the word, and it's just, it's an incredible read, very helpful. Um, And then we have a mug. These are the greatest mugs, you guys. Even beyond the fact that they say Dayton women, like it's a really good weight, like the handle is nice. I, I love this mug. I'm really picky about mugs, and this is a really good one. So, okay, we'll do the book first. Grace Komazarski, you get a book. Woo woo. And.
The mug goes to Stephanie Penn. Congratulations, ladies. So enjoy the rest of your summers, what little is left of them. Stay in the word and keep following Jesus. Love you, ladies. <laughs>